This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for episode 105 of the podcast. Today I'll be talking with Alyssa Redmiles, faculty member and research group leader at the Max Planck Institute for Software Systems, founder and managing researcher of Human Computing Associates, and as well, visiting scholar at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. Let's run a user study on the scientific paper. Now, I hardly feel the need to motivate the study, but not to would certainly be bad science, so here goes. The scientific paper is the exemplary instrument of the scientific method. Across all fields of scientific inquiry, advancement in knowledge depends on paper publishing. Also, the scientific paper is in boom time, because the body of available literature doubles about every decade, and because the body of writing researchers and reading researchers is growing at similarly exponential rates. Therefore, the paper is becoming all-present, and is thus being read by more eyes and being written by more hands than ever before. Finally, the scientific paper causes trouble, because for so, so many... Too many by far, the writing up of the research or the reading in the literature is a dreaded task, a painful task, a procrastinated task, even a task which some will question the purpose of, and this despite the already stated fact that the scientific paper is central to science. Okay, so our user study of the scientific paper has solid motivation. Now let me start the process of honing down all the possible ideas here to something resembling a research statement. I'll begin at the back, at the last point I mentioned about the perceptions held of the scientific paper by its primary users, that is, by the scientists themselves. So, we're going to need to devise a way to elicit true and straightforward responses from scientists about the scientific paper. And I emphasize this point because it's my expectation, based on my experience helping scientists with the communication of research, that very many prejudices and very many partially formed notions surround the scientific paper as it is perceived by scientists in their real day-to-day research lives. For instance, I expect that the median view taken of the paper will be one that actually doesn't quite see the point. And I don't mean doesn't see the point as in publishing of results is considered pointless. No, that is a reality which I believe most scientists have found their peace with. Instead, what I mean is that the median view taken of the paper will be one that just does not see what each word or phrase or sentence or paragraph of a paper is supposed to be accomplishing. 
And this view, I argue, will hold whether the scientist is reading or is him or herself writing the paper. So the view, I conclude, is a view taken generally of text for scientific purposes and not just of the process of producing such text. What I'm trying to say is this. Very many scientists see in papers text. They see paragraphs and sentences and the rest of the language. But in order to use the object, the paper, more and better to advantage, scientists might instead see the functions which the text serves. Because in the end, text is a mass of exchangeable and replaceable items. That is, there's a million ways of saying the same thing. Therefore, the reason for choosing any one of the items to go toward one saying of any one of the million ways of saying a thing, well, that reason is really the function which that item will serve. For example, a great lot of discussion has occurred on the topic of the little words we and our, O-U-R. Some say, don't use the words. Others say, do use the words, but only sometimes. And still others say, always use the words. Well, if an author or reader knows that one function of we or are is to own interpretations of results, well, in that case, it becomes evident why the following two versions of the same thought are different. We optimize the hyperparameters of the model for purposes of reinforcement learning. The hyperparameters of the model are optimized for purposes of reinforcement learning. The sentence with we means, this is a contribution of ours. While the sentence without we means, this is a step in the procedure of reinforcement learning. So by this snap illustration here, I want to show how the median understanding of we and are is actually word level understanding. But it could be, as I've demonstrated, turned into function level understanding. And my point is, to use the scientific paper to best advantage, users, that is scientists, would do well to understand the words in a paper not verbally, but functionally. However, I expect that our user study will show how the median scientist instead does just see the word level of things, or primarily anyway the word level. And so, I conclude, very many scientists are indeed working with just text in and of itself. Or to be specific, very many scientists are looking at the text to devise ways of varying the expression up, or of checking whether the verb must change form or not, or of matching their own wording to the wording typical of papers on the same topic. But basically, that sort of text activity, that verbal understanding of the paper, it is my argument, is precisely the root cause of much malaise in the task of reading and writing scientific papers. Because, and this is perhaps the truest motivation for our study, because the use to which a paper is actually put is toward the production of more papers. Or to rephrase that more precisely, the use to which the culmination of research projects is actually put is the genesis of more research projects. You see, the paper is a research project and not, per se, a text. And if we can discern in the user data that we'll collect the trend that I expect we will discern, namely that researchers are seeing language and wording and text where actually they are looking at methods and results and interpretation, if that is a result that we obtain, then I think we'd better look to design our survey methodology to search for this supposed perception amongst writing and reading scientists. Because, you know, it really is just a chance kind of thing that papers are put into words. 
and it will remain so only until a more effective means for preserving and disseminating the work of scientists comes along. Granted, I don't see a better means coming along anytime soon, but that does not mean that there is anything inherent about the written word, or in particular anything inherent about the written word in the English language that is somehow specially scientific. No, what is scientific about the scientific paper is the science itself, the research content that the paper contains. And so I'd say, if our results should pan out as expected, we should include in the section Future Work our recommendations for scientists to help them diminish their malaise in text, to help them see, for instance, ways of writing and reading the research itself instead of, as my suspicion is that they're now doing, writing and reading texts. I think a generous uptake of our proposed recommendations, still to be precisely formulated, will open to that fictive median scientist this view on the paper. It is there to serve my purposes, whether producing my own results and interpretations or appreciating the results and interpretations done by others. Because, I say, the scientist who knows that the text is the research will also know instinctively and by minimal training just how to use the text in exactly the same way that every scientist knows by training, and as well instinctively, how to use the code, or the pipette, or the incubator, or the telescope, or the microscope. The text is a tool of the method, and why one would perform any particular action by the text is explainable just as precisely as are explainable the actions performed by all the tools in the scientist's methodological toolkit. So, for the user study, that would be, on the high-level message level, the takeaway of our recommendations. But I think it's time I left off planning a user study I know I can't implement, and instead turn to my guest today, who could full well implement this and, more important, user studies, Alyssa Redmiles. My guest today, Alyssa Redmiles, has served on the committees of all the top security and privacy venues, S&P, CCS, Usenix. Alyssa's research employs the methods of computational, economic, and social science in order to help us understand and model users' decision-making on safety. Alyssa specifically investigates inequities that arise in people's decision-making and in the design of systems because the farther reach of her work is to mitigate those inequities and facilitate safety for individual users and across user groups. Alyssa is particularly concerned to see equity brought to at-risk populations, for example, to undocumented immigrants, to sex workers, to the family members of prisoners, to the victims of domestic violence. So, Alyssa's research is technological, but Alyssa's research is social too. So let's begin today's episode, Alyssa Redmiles and Human-Computer Interaction for Improved Security and Privacy. Hi, Alyssa. Welcome to Scholarly Communication. Thanks for having me, Daniel. Your research is clearly making an impact in your field. And you're publishing at a very productive rate and at very prominent uh, venues for your field. Your papers are also resonating with your community. You have to date an impressive amount of uh, distinguished papers and runners-up and so on. I wonder if you could, uh, for early career researchers out there just interested in publishing scientists, give us a sense as to what um, the contribution has been of considering communication, considering writing, and the entire, let's say, pipeline of how 
you hone a message in a paper and then send it out and get it read? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for the thought-provoking question. I think that the the process of sort of getting something read to me really starts before there's ever any words on the paper. Um, so a lot of times for me, this starts when it comes to deciding to work on a project at all. Um, increasingly in my career, when I decide to start working on a project, I really think about who I'm trying to impact with the results of the work or with what I eventually am going to write about it. Uh, And sometimes what this looks like, uh, for example, in the work with marginalized and vulnerable communities that you mentioned, it might be that a community uh, has been struggling with a particular issue. They've been doing activism around a particular issue, but they don't have the empirical data placed in peer-reviewed, respected venues as it's sort of needed in order to do the advocacy work. And so sometimes that becomes a research question for us because we can't guarantee, of course, the results, but we can go and investigate and experience. And in that case, we sort of have two audiences, right? We have the community of study. And a lot of times um, we're increasingly trying to make kind of one pager briefs that express the results of the research in a more useful way for non-academics so that the community can use it. Um, But we also have as an audience, say, either the security community or the HCI community um, of academics. And when I think about those communities, I'm often thinking about what I'd like my colleagues to do, right? So thinking about security, for example, uh, a lot of us are builders, right? We're building new cryptographic algorithms or new defensive tools or even trying to measure the efficacy of attacks, Um, And so I think about like, where do I wish that that energy was directed in order to make like the biggest difference in people's lives? Um, And so that's how I think about kind of writing the paper. It's like, what is my call to action um, that I would like people to do? And maybe they won't do that and they'll do something, you know, completely different, but I want them to sort of know about a space, know about problems in a space and understand why I or we or the community thinks that those problems are meaningful and impactful so that this can serve as sort of the motivation for technical work that they want to do later on. And that works for the work with marginalized and vulnerable communities, but for, you know, non-community driven work as well, right? So for example, I'm doing some work on explaining uh, technical kind of privacy protections And in our community, there are a lot of people like constantly making these new systems that have these new privacy guarantees, but we have no idea whether the privacy guarantees actually address uh, end user concerns, right? And so so the focus of our work is to answer that question. And the goal of answering that question is really to guide technical development, to work on the things that kind of the public cares about, um, as well as the things that scientists care about. So I really think that the key piece to to writing a good paper is thinking about what you're trying to accomplish. And I used to work in marketing before I was an academic. We always had to have a call to action for every white paper, for everything that we created. It was there for a purpose. It was there to get someone to do something. Um, And in that case, it was kind of moving along the sales pipeline. But in research, you have a lot more options of what you might be wanting someone to do. Uh, when they read your paper, but that's what I try to focus on. 
That's wonderful. That sounds a little bit like this function idea I was trying to explore there in the uh, introduction. So you really see it as the paper has accomplished something or not, and the writing of it is yeah a means, if I'm not mistaken. Then yes, exactly. I really uh, that idea really resounded or registered with me well because I, I always do think of it. The words themselves are kind of just in service of that goal. And and frankly, you know, sometimes academic papers are like necessary, but not always sufficient um, in the sense that like, I will also sometimes write op-eds and so forth. And so I think there's a lot of value in creating more consumable versions um, in addition to trying to make our papers more consumable. <laughs> That's an interesting topic. Consumability or readability, if that might be also a counterpart term um, in, in scientific uh, literature and the security and privacy uh, venues. I think, though, I'd like to explore just a little bit more of this because th this is really key, I think, to understanding how to write a paper and what you want from a paper. This This question of audience that you've just so vividly put before us now that you... You know, for example, and much of your core work looked to the at-risk uh, population and really tried to understand what it is that you might need to communicate to them, but understood also that they need the backing of scientific research in an entirely different realm to be able to have some uptake of, of some of the recommendations that you might want to make or the policy decisions you'd like to influence. Let, let us, though, perhaps focus in on these more technical papers where you feel you're really speaking directly to your security and privacy community. And how is it there that you start to devise a sense of, I need to be able, I need to be telling them this so that they listen. I need to be offering them then this so that they start to care. And then I could start to get perhaps to this or that detail. I know I'm being very abstract here, but I, I imagine you follow. Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's um, a couple of pieces, right? So I think in particular, if you're doing interdisciplinary work or introducing kind of new methods to a community or methods that aren't used by a large portion of that community, you the first hurdle you have right, is to prove that what you're doing is rigorous science. Um, I had a mentor who once said that uh, she started reviewing every paper by reading the methods section because she didn't care what the research question was if the methods weren't any good. Um, and I think about that often, right, which is that I think that early on in my career, uh, some of the kinds of methods I was using, like qualitative interviews, for example, or behavioral economics, were used by some people in security and privacy, but not many. Um, and a lot of like technical folks had sort of questions about the validity of these methods. And so I ended up having to write the method section in a way that really gave also an overview of sort of best practice in that particular methodological area where it had citations, so on and so forth. And eventually, I actually ended up doing some epistemological research as well, um, which were separate peer-reviewed papers, also in security and privacy venues, kind of asking the questions that reviewers had asked, right, where they were like, you know, is survey data actually representative of real behavior in security and privacy? Well, we can combine measurement methods where we look at people's behavior and log data and survey methods to actually answer that question, right? And then that becomes a building block that I can use when I'm writing future like survey papers to say, okay, here's what we can and can't take from this data. So I think in any of this work, you know, what I learned is first people have to 
by the methods that you're using. And so that often means that your method section might be a bit longer than if you're doing something that's like traditional in your field. Um, but what I've seen in the, the subsequent years is people will say things like, oh, I used this or that paper as a template for how to write up my work using the same method. And so these things kind of perpetuate. Um, that, that's mostly good. Occasionally you kind of made an early mistake, right? Like you either used a statistical method, not in a recommended way or something like that. And then you'll see the mistake propagate. So sometimes you have to kind of um, make corrections. Um, but yeah, so this, I find a useful method. And then there's also the piece of, uh, to your point, sort of getting people to care and or getting people to sort of see the relevance to their work. And that's where I think that in doing this sort of, I think of it as problem finding work, um, you really need a good grasp of the, the technical directions in the field such that you can say, look, here's this problem that we identified. Here's how it's similar to classical problems in the field, or here's how it could be solved by classical solutions in the field. And so that might mean that you need to know about a particular kind of advanced cryptographic technique or something like browser fingerprinting to make those connections. So you really need to go to talks, read papers, you know, take courses, et cetera, on the broader things in your field, not just sort of your sub area. So you can spell out those connections for people so they can kind of hook in and know, oh, okay, here's where I fit. Well, that's that's uh, that's very really interesting. I mean, particularly what you say there uh, to to backpedal a bit about the methods. Um, this is something that I've also heard, also from other fields outside of computer scientists, that you know reviewers hone in on those, and it's it gives them a bit of a yes or no to start with on whether or not the paper is is you know going to get this or that kind of a review, and and sometimes they're even sought out in the journal world. By, you know, reviewers are sought out in the journal world by editors because they have expertise in that particular set of uh, methodology. So, I mean, what, what you say is very interesting because of the fact that you're working in this somewhat interdisciplinary realm inside of security and, and uh, privacy. I mean, as you say yourself, this is... I mean, I'm sure there's going to be, uh, you know, people in in your community uh, who might look at the paper and not see a single line of code in it and start to wonder, well, what is this actually about then? <laughs> or or am I off there? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, um, you know, the, the usable security field had started, you know, long before, before I came. So people are so used to thinking about people. Um, but... I do think there was sort of a, a separation maybe where there was a certain set of, of folks in the community who are used to thinking about it. And then other folks who are sort of used to like not looking at those papers or it's just one session in a conference. Now we'll have a whole track. And so I think this is great in terms of um, things becoming more mainstream, but it also means that I feel like the papers need to be written in such a way that they're accessible to people who are across the community. And I think to your point, there are certain kind of like mathematics and cryptography or code for many of the other areas, these sort of common things that people are like, oh, okay, I know what this is. I know how to read it. I know how to interpret it. And that's growing with the kind of like measurement and user study methods that we use. But there's still a lot of people in the community who aren't necessarily familiar with it, or they may have never taken like a graduate class on it, so forth. So I think there still is a lot of kind of 
needing to walk people through things. And it can be easy when you're deep in the area to think like, oh, I don't need to cover that or I don't need to explain that or I don't need to spell out the connections. Um, And usually when we forget to do that, we get reminded by reviewers that we need to. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, th- this is probably one of those central questions on most authors' minds. I know um, I, I help uh, computer scientists also uh, in their research communication, and it is a question that I'm also often asked. So at what level do I explain, right? How much do I have to say? What is the level of background? How many connections or dots do I need to be connecting um, for my reader and so on? And and I think your, your position, which you've just described – gives an interesting view because you are inside of a community, they know the kind of work that you do, and yet you feel that maybe a few extra dots won't hurt. And and perhaps that's also just a typical situation for an interdisciplinary researcher, maybe, right? Yes, absolutely. Because I'd say, you know, sometimes when we publish, I've published in social science venues as well, but um, when we publish in other venues, sometimes we have to think about, like, appropriately explaining if we're studying kind of a, a particular very technical uh, technology or, or approach, you know, maybe these are folks who are really um, deep on the analysis of people or analysis of interactions, but they maybe don't necessarily know all of the different ways that you could implement this particular, you know, technical thing. And maybe our research is on how to explain the technical thing. So it's mostly about people, but you still have to provide like an accessible background. And there's often kind of a gap there, right, between the really detailed explanation, as you mentioned, and kind of the intuition level explanation, which is what you need to understand the paper and what you're going to be willing to read, that there might not be a good one out there for you to paraphrase or cite. You might have to kind of come up with it yourself. Yeah, this is the creative work in research writing, or I mean... One example of the creative work in research writing, isn't it? I mean, what you've just described, as far as I understand, is this intuitive level understanding of the technique or the fine level technology. And then later on or elsewhere in the paper, the fine level explanation or 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 description of the technology. In other words, understanding that not only does each word in your paper have a function, but different places in your paper have different functions, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. I love that way of putting it. To get back to this uh, issue of of methods, um, one thing that's also, I would say, unique to your area of uh, research is that, well, you've certainly collaborated and especially coordinated, I would say, mid-level teams, right? Uh, Fairly sizable teams. Uh, Early career researchers are very often in uh, those collaboration teams as well in the area of uh, user studies. And I can only imagine that their coordination effort is fairly high. (laughs) I mean, for one, if you're dealing, as you say, with social or economic ends of a project, then there's going to be a high level of effort needed, especially in the methods, again, where we are, um, to ensure that, you know, the quality of the assessment, the comparability of the raters and and, and things like that are, are... you know, given, right? Um, could, could you perhaps speak a bit to this role as coordinator, team leader in such studies as these? Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. So I think my collaborations, um, you're exactly right. I typically work with people whose expertise is different than mine. Um, and often I kind of sit in this translation 
um, space or role uh, where there's a lot of um, translating like different words that we use for things, right? So sometimes when I, I work with social scientists, they might talk about um, kind of like a, a, you know, binary variable or binomial variable. Computer scientists might use the term Boolean. Um, we have different kind of rules within different subfields of computer science for like whether we do statistical analysis. Many folks I work with um, have really never done a statistical analysis, have never run a regression model because that's not really part of their um, scope of kind of research practice. And so then we have a lot of conversations about like what it even means to know something, right? So one of my colleagues might feel that they know something from writing a proof or they might feel that they know something from looking at a graph, whereas I might feel that I know something from looking at statistics or uh, doing qualitative coding, right, with a certain intercoder agreement. Um, and so we often have to have a lot of conversations where people kind of come with their evidence and then others of us in the group are sort of like, oh, I usually do this evidence this way. Like, could we also try that? Or could I use the data to do this thing? Um, and, and sometimes it takes a little while to figure out kind of what's not sitting right with you, right? So I think I sometimes will see, um, you know, the, when I play this kind of bridging role, what I'll see is that people are like, oh, well, I don't, I don't buy that, or I don't like that, or I think we should do it this way, or I don't know why we need to do that. Like, those are kind of the questions that come up. And then I think um, a lot of times it's my role as the bridge to kind of try to explain person A's context and person B's context and why they you know, want to do this thing or why there's a need for it or what some other roles might be. And usually we get to a point um, of agreement, but it can be kind of quite a process as you as you mentioned. I, yeah, and um, I, I want to jump in there because what you've just talked about, I find, is, is quite fascinating. This idea that, you know, what does it mean for you to know something? And as you've described yourself as being in a facilitating role, a translation space, as you so, so nicely put it, I mean, as a side note, that would explain why you're good at communicating, I would imagine, because <laughs> to be in precisely that space is, is one of the, the areas where communicator, good communicators tend to thrive. But to get back to this epistemological question, it is one of those major challenges, I would say, of collaboration generally. Now, I mean, of course, collaboration can occur, you know, very tightly in a subdomain where people are just, you know, allocating similar tasks. But the work you've described is the level of collaboration where you've got different people at the table. And I wonder, you know, what you might say in your experience from that as to, you know, what advances and what hinders advance in such collaborative um, atmospheres, let's say? Yeah. Um, so I guess in my experience, um, I would say a couple of things. So first, when we, we structure a project, we try to be really clear about roles. You know, like, is there a clear um, student lead, right? In computer science, it, it's often the students who are doing data collection analysis and, and much of the writing. And so is there a clear student lead? Do we have two students? And what parts are they doing? Are there going to be two papers or one paper? Really try to kind of scaffold out, like, what is this project going to look like? And obviously, things change as you go along. Um, but I think those ownership and expectation conversations are really useful and they avoid kind of conflicts around the, the logistics of the science, so to speak. Um, and the other thing that we do is we usually have 
um, regular project meetings um, that are just a time where people kind of share results, share updates, share progress. Um, and I also run kind of a weekly meeting for my group where people do the same thing, but not with the other folks on their project. It's just with the broader group. And I find that sort of saying it twice to two different audiences, one that has a stake in what you're doing and one that, that doesn't, but might have feedback or thoughts about it can be really helpful to kind of understand that like maybe someone in your collaborations critique isn't, you know, they aren't alone in that critique, or maybe there's this thing that you all haven't even thought of because it wasn't part of the space. And so I think some of the role as an advisor in these collaborations is sort of making sure that people get not just the collaborative input, but also sort of external input. Because I think sometimes you can feel like, oh, we're really making good progress. We're collaborating together, blah, blah, blah. And you can have like pushed each other into a very strange corner um, through a bunch of compromises. So sometimes that external feedback can help with like staying on course. I want, there are a lot of people who also extend that into, let's say, a sort of writer's group when a project is reaching the paper to such a level that somebody might actually just take it home and, and read it overnight and give you feedback on it. In other words, I'm talking about maybe even outside the group, you know, your, your, your peers at, at the Institute, um, other group leaders. Is that something that you also um, try out or use regularly, such, such sort of internal networks of peers? Yeah, good question. Um, I definitely do if it's a kind of a, a more unusual paper. What I mean by that is like we're trying to explore something that's not typical in the field or I'm really trying to get a particular community to understand a call to action. Then I will um, kind of ask a colleague who might be in that community if they're willing to read maybe just like the intro and the discussion. I think it's a thing that I wish we could do more of. Like in computer science, I feel like the volume of papers, as you mentioned earlier, can lead people to kind of fatigue after doing reviews and so forth. And it's like, I try to be really judicious about what I ask people to read. Um, but within my research group, there is a lot of paper swapping where people are kind of like, hey, can you read my paper? I'll read your paper. So we do it internally. I'd say for external folks, I'm usually kind of picky about it, but we do it occasionally when it's more of a kind of thought leadership piece versus just kind of regular science, so to speak. I see. Okay. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to uh, backpedal once more to this. We, we had talked a little bit about methods and you mentioned also as, as another important way for you to sort of figure out, okay, what do I, what do I need to say? What, what is the level of what it is that I'm going to say and to whom? And you talked there about problem finding work, right? Really figuring out inside of um, a set of questions, okay, what are the areas where I need to brush up on my background, understand what's happening and so on? I wonder if you would add to that also understanding, let's say, a researcher's, um, and I buy that, I really mean a person's name, like maybe maybe four or five names happen to be quite prominent in that particular area, understanding his or her concerns, what it is that seems to be motivating their studies, and, and sort of calculating that also into this idea of, okay, I'm finding this problem, and I need to know this about it. So this is a sort of well, it's a, it's a combination of research content. You need to understand what that particular researcher is doing, but it's somewhat interpersonal as well because it's figuring out, well, why are they doing it? I wonder if that is something also that you might calculate into your, your honing of the message. Yeah, that's a really 
good question. Um, I think kind of subconsciously, yes. Um, I think about, you know, a lot of times in the security community, the kind of why for people is like, okay, I want people to to be safe or be protected from these particular harms. Or the why is I want to use this particular technique that I'm really excited about. Um, So I think intuitively, yes. I think that I, you know, wish that I did more understanding of why people do it. I think it's something that we don't talk about a lot. Um, There are certain books, like a colleague of mine has these books called like Research Confidential that tell kind of the the real story of the research, right? The stuff that didn't make it in the paper. And I find things like that really helpful or like talking to colleagues to kind of be like, well, what actually happens and what do you actually need? Um, And I can give one maybe brief example which is I, I went to the economics and computation conference. We had a paper there and it was the first time I'd been to that community. And it really helped me to go there because I saw that um, for folks who do theoretical, like mathematical work, they often use kind of an example case, like a straw man that they um, build their uh, mathematical contribution around. And I saw that kind of what had excited them about our work, which was more empirical, was they were like, ooh, now I have this data validated straw man to build work around. And so that was kind of helpful to understand that like, ah, these models of human behavior that we build are useful both to answer some empirical question we had, but also useful in and of themselves as a tool for theorists to kind of go and do more work. And so to your point, that was like a really helpful, not really an intentional insight, but it was a helpful insight into the motivations of that community and kind of how our work could address those. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. That, that, that's, uh, that's a great example. I mean, so essentially what I'm hearing is that, that you could see the value of, um, I mean, let's say just to make it a bit concrete, you know, you, you are writing up a paper, you're doing, you know, the initial work on it, and you're finding yourself sort of revolving around a handful of studies. You might see the value then in that case of, you know, looking into those researchers and figuring out, well, you know, what has been their path of development? Why might they have taken that path to also include that in, in your figuring of how do I write this? Yes, absolutely. To take that up one more level <laughs> before before I leave this idea of problem finding behind us, um, what about then the venues themselves? Um how would that figure in? Um, I, I found it really interesting the way you, we started off the conversation and you, you said that, you know, the the thinking on a project or the, let's say, the communication of a project begins long before the writing. And um, I mean, that to me makes you know intuitive sense. I, I entirely follow what you're saying there, right? You're figuring out what it is that you even have to say. But I wonder how that matches up also with targeting venues. Um, you know, for instance, I've heard that uh, the top three, which I mentioned in the introduction, use Nix S&P and CCS, that um, you know people have trouble, let's say, making large distinctions between those three. They're just highly prestigious top venues. Uh, and of course, that's not the entire field by any means, but there's there's plenty of places to go and, and you've published in, in, in a variety of them. But um, I suppose the question to bring it to a point is, is how do you select venues and uh, how does prestige factor into that as opposed to targeting audience, let's say? Yeah, so I think this is something that has changed over uh, my career and I'm sure it will, will keep changing. So I think when I was um, a more junior scholar, right, when you're a PhD student, then advi- then 
venue choices influenced like both by your advisor's preferences and maybe, you know, you want the most prestigious places so that you can eventually get a job or get more opportunities, et cetera. I think at this point in my career, what I think about now and, and thought about somewhat then too is, you know, exactly that audience question, right? So, so for some papers, it's like what I really want is I want there to be security and privacy, like technical development on this topic. Whereas for other papers, it's like, well, I did an interesting analysis and I found this interesting thing about the world or this interesting thing about how people interact with platforms or so forth. And that might be a better piece to have at like an HCI uh, venue where people are interested in sort of people's motivations for using digital platforms and so forth, but there might not be like a clear intervention necessary, uh, so to speak, or if there is an intervention, it's not like a security related one. Uh, and occasionally I do some work that's more kind of machine learning oriented, either in in methods or in focus. And so then the people who care about that work is different. So now I really do try to think about who cares about the work? What are the career goals of like the student authors on the paper, right? Is this someone who wants to stay in security? Then we should probably like focus on security venues, although we're, really that means we should have a security research question to send to a security venue. Um, and then within, say, particular venues and security, I guess my read is that colleagues of mine who are cryptographers who I collaborate with have a somewhat preference for, say, uh, CCS over Usenix. And so either if someone has a preference or if the work speaks more to like the crypto community, then I might send it there. Uh, Usenix security very much has uh, a focus on kind of applied work um, and certainly like attacks and they get um, good kind of industry attendance and so forth. And so the work that I do is that is more applied, that's more about platforms or about kind of attacks that are happening, those kind of things. Um, those are things I think to send to Usenix. And then Oakland, for me, I would say Oakland and Usenix are sort of interchangeable. It used to be that I thought of Oakland when it was smaller as kind of the place that you send like the seminal thing, right? So this, if this is like the first paper on something in particular, it sort of lays a framework for thinking about a particular area. That's something I would think to, to send to Oakland. I would say as Oakland has grown, I think sometimes I find the the sort of distinction, as you mentioned, bef- between the three conferences um, hasn't uh, remained as much. So a lot of times it also just depends, you know, when is the work ready and when is the nearest deadline and so on and so forth. Uh, but that's roughly how I think about it. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's a very clear picture. I think uh, definitely. And sp- speaking of nearing deadline and 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 so on, um, when it comes to that point where you know you're really touching up the text and you're quite satisfied with um, the message that it's getting across and the results and the and the methods all line up. Um, I mean, the computer science conference r- rotation has an an added, let's say, deadline pressure to it that really doesn't exist at, in that form in lots of other fields, right? Um, because you submit to journals when you're ready. I mean, there's, there's calls for papers and so on, but most often the, the, the habit is to submit when you're ready. But computer scientists are put a little bit under more pressure because of their conference rotation. I wonder how that figures in then to your finalizing the manuscript. I mean, how polished... Um, 
a manuscript do you want to submit? Do you feel that there's you know a trade-off that's worth making there when the deadline approaches instead of waiting for another? Yeah, that's a good question. So I'll speak to security because we have a very different deadline ecosystem than, say, HCI. Um, my rule, broadly speaking, in the group is if we know something that can be improved, not like something super tiny, but like, yeah, something I think a reviewer would say, if we know something that can be improved, then we should improve it and not send it. Like, I like to send papers once we're kind of at a point where we're like, you know, I think I've improved all the things that I have. Now I need some feedback from other people, right? And sometimes at that point, it's like, oh, that didn't land. And now we have to redo the framing. Or a lot of times it's like, oh, okay, it worked. And usually when I've kind of been on on papers that got submitted, even though I kind of knew "Mm, we have this problem, like that problem comes up. Um, And at this point, I don't feel like, you know, we have enough deadlines and I want to be respectful of, of reviewer effort. I don't really see any point in submitting it and then having a revision cycle and whatever. It just feels more painful to me than just doing it kind of thoroughly the first time. Um, Another thing that we use in my group is that uh, sometimes we'll have an external copy editor who will copy edit the paper, um, say 24 hours before the deadline, just to catch all the grammatical things and so forth. And this is really helpful um, because we have group members who are native English speakers and group members who aren't. Um, And it also means that, you know, everyone on the paper is kind of focused on the substantive pieces and yes, like the flow and so forth, but not kind of where is this comma going and did someone screw up pluralization. Um, And I found that to be a really useful thing and something that lowers stress where people kind of for the more nervous authors, they sort of feel like, oh, okay, I know that someone like checked it, someone read it. And our copy editor will even sometimes like point out something where he's like, oh, this part of the discussion doesn't feel that connected to the results. He pointed that out recently. And indeed a reviewer like pointed out the same thing and we fixed it in a revision. So I think um, to your earlier question about external eyes, I'm very big on like paying people for their labor. So we often will hire some uh, copy editor, not from our field as sort of those external eyes. External eyes is a wonderful way of putting it because I happen to be working in an area. I I come from English for academic purposes, helping um, computer scientists, as I said, work on their research communication, not at the copy editing level before that, a couple stages before that. And um, it's it's been very interesting as external eyes. I mean, my my background is linguistics and, and English literature to see what it is that I can actually sometimes see. I mean, this this example that you just gave of this part of the discussion doesn't quite seem to match up with, you know, another part in the paper. I mean, obviously, I am not a coder and I can't do the math, but um, it's funny what somebody, you know, who is willing to engage with the text, sometimes dense text, can still notice. Yes, absolutely. Exactly. And I think, you know, to the point that you had at the very beginning of this, you want the paper, lots of people are reading papers, even people who aren't academics. And so to the extent possible, it would be nice for at least, you know, intro and discussion to be accessible to new scholars, to people just interested in the area, et cetera, when it's able to happen. And so that means people who aren't computer scientists need to read your work. (laughs) Um. You, you've mentioned reviewing a few times, and I'm sure you've also done some of your own reviewing. And I, I think it's always very interesting for authors uh, to hear what it is that's on reviewers' minds. So 
maybe as one just brief side note on uh, your feelings as a reviewer, you know, when you get a paper and, and you're making decisions about it, what are some like basic points that for you spell trouble or spell intrigue, curiosity, great interest, let's say? Yeah. So I do, at least in part, practice the read the methods first um, approach to reviewing, although I do usually read uh, like the abstract and the intro as well, because sort of my my two first criteria are like, why are we doing this? And how is it different from what's already been done? Or is it replicating, which is totally fine, um, as long as that's up front. And then my second question is like, did we do it well? And that's where I go and read the methods. After that, um, I will go through results. I don't usually necessarily have a ton of feedback on results unless it's like, oh, it could be more clearly presented, something like that. But I really like a discussion to be like, okay, we know why we did this. We know that we did it well. Now what am I supposed to do with what you found? And I'll I'll be open that as an author, the discussion section is sometimes the one I struggle with the most because sometimes the answer is like, we did this because I think it's a curious thing to know and now we know it at the end. Um, And so I I understand that, uh, but I also understand that the work can have more impact when there's sort of clear points in the discussion, even if it is kind of building on a body of knowledge that you've situated it in that knowledge and so forth. And that's something I see trip people up uh, sometimes is they'll have a nice related work section and they'll have nice discussion points, but they're not connected in any way. And so I don't really know what I've learned kind of beyond this paper, right? How is it contributing to the growing body of knowledge, not just kind of here's my point and here are some things about the point. Um, so that's something that I often recommend uh, to folks in my group or to authors I review to to try to combine your results with what's already known to make a stronger discussion point. I think that's that's a very good advice out there for for submitting authors. I I have to say that um, I I've worked with uh, scientists in, in very many different fields. Um, I'm currently, as I said, working with computer scientists. And what I notice right away in computer science is the structure of the paper. So I mean, while you were saying their discussion, I was thinking of the papers that I've all, uh, that I've you know been looking at over the past few, few months and. And, and starting to visualize, where was the discussion then again? <laughs> I mean, one of the habits I've noticed in, in computer science is to sort of combine results and discussions and to be flexible in the heading labels or section numbering or section labeling even in a way that, let's say, in other fields, chemistry or, or, or biology, where it's really just intro methods, results, and discussion, it's not always quite so apparent. Um, I mean, you've worked in interdisciplinary fields, so I imagine you've noticed the way other articles tend to look. Yes, absolutely. And this is something, you know, to speaking of collaborations, right? Most of my social science collaborators, you know, you're very strictly just reporting the results in the results section. And then you're discussing anything you want to discuss in the discussion. I think I agree with you in, in CS, it's often combined. You, the discussion might be very short. It might not exist. There might not be a conclusion. The sections might be labeled differently. I've done all of these things. And in a way, I actually kind of like it because it means that you can like structure the paper in a way that feels most readable. I think the downside, of course, is if someone's coming to the paper and they're planning just to go to a specific section, that might 
not be possible, right? Because there may be no discussion. You may have to go read the results. In a way, though, that can be good, too, because it means that you have to form, you know, you're seeing the, the, the data itself. And so you have to form some of your own opinion while reading the interpretation instead of just skipping to the interpretation. But I do agree. It's very woven together sometimes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's it's also allows for, and th- and that's what I like, is that, you know, applicability to this project, you know, you can sh- restructure the paper and there's a lot of acceptance for that um, in the community. To, to, to wrap up, um, one last question that I'd like uh, to ask is, and this is a one of those broad, difficult questions, so feel free, <laughs> feel free to be brief if you like, but for you in the end, what counts as a project well done? You know, when it's out gone, submitted, published, and so on. What is some of the things that really give you the gratification where you know you invested the right thing in that project? So I think the first thing that comes to mind is definitely impact, and that can take a lot of different forms, but it either spurred follow-up research that I think is like useful and good, it's spurred tool building, it's spurred a change in policy, it made a particular population feel heard or a particular set of needs feel heard, or it changed the mental model that researchers in the space have about something in a way that, you know, at least I feel is positive. So that's really kind of the number one thing for me. I also take some joy in like beautiful and thorough methods, you know, like we really measured that well where we like really did like a cool statistical modeling or a cool experimental technique, or we have a really interesting big data set that like took a lot of labor and years and like we did it in a way that I'm like proud of how we did it. Um, so those are the two things that I think about. Well, thank you very much for that, Alyssa. That is Alyssa Redmiles of Max Planck Institute of Human Computing Associates and also visiting scholar at Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Alyssa. Goodbye. Bye. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye, and until next time here on Scholarly Communication. <laughs>